The patients themselves will tell you the impact on their lives is profound. And we then go, yeah, we know, because we're looking at that kind of statistic saying there is absolutely 100% outcome here because of the tapping. And they're saying to us, I'm not having nightmares anymore. I'm not, ha- I don't jump or have the startle reflex. I'm back to my normal self. Those memories and, you know, events don't bother me anymore. So they're telling us the, the lived experience, but we're seeing it in the numbers. So to have effect sizes like that um, is profound. It's just amazing. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting edge information from leading experts from around the world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and with me today from Bond University on the Gold Coast is Associate Professor Peter Stapleton. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Nathan. My pleasure. So today we're here to talk about EFT or emotional freedom technique, and uh, there's a really large body of evidence behind it, and which is when I've, I was surprised, pleasantly surprised when I first stumbled across all this information and found your name and you've uh, published a lot of direct studies and reviews. So we're here to dive into the research, but also the clinical applications of EFT. Um, Before we do, perhaps just give us a bit of a a brief background. You're a a psychologist and also a researcher. How do you uh, marry those two? So I am a clinical and health psychologist, always been in private practice over the years, but have at the same time. I got into academia pretty early. I guess it was just a love of teaching. So uh, our current positions do allow us to keep seeing patients and clients along the way. So at the same time, I do teach at master's level in our psychology program, mostly psychopathology and health psychology. So I guess I am able to at the same time be active in research and there's great freedom in being allowed to research whatever you like. So mm-hmm. because we were using, you know, up to 20 years ago now, EFT or tapping in private practice there wasn't a lot of research about 20 years ago so because my particular role allowed that and it was sort of starting to grow in the US as well we started kicking off the research in that area here in Australia and it's been a whirlwind ever since. Wow and so okay first of all um, what is the origins of EFT? I see it as sort of like two sort of modalities and somewhat you know quite removed from like a you know, mm. traditional Chinese medicine point of view, the acupuncture, but overlay with that is this sort of, I wouldn't even say traditional, and, and pardon my ignorance around psychology, but um, uh, quite a nuanced type of um, so, uh, psychological approach to like therapy. So, yeah, yeah, what's the origins of this? Yeah, look, it. some people sort of go right back and say, because it's been probably since the 1960s really that the origins in terms of its current form exist. I mean, you could go back, you know, centuries obviously with looking at Chinese acupuncture. But in the 60s there was a US chiropractor who was sort of playing around with kinesiology and was sort of the forefigure behind that kind of energy testing sort of approach. And I guess one of his students um, who'd learnt that approach was actually an Aussie, a um, psychiatrist here, uh, John Diamond, who started to use acupressure tapping, like percussing they called it. So that was sort of in the 70s. And then it bounced back to America where mostly the origins of tapping go to a um, US therapist, uh, Roger Callahan, and he was the one who had originally been working with a woman who'd had this phobia, intense fear of water, to the point where she couldn't even have a shower or a bath, like she was so phobic. 
And so the story goes that he just had done session after session after session with her with traditional sort of talk therapy. Nothing had worked, but she always said she felt really nauseous, didn't know where it came from. And really out of that, he started just reading stuff around Chinese acupuncture and pressure points and what they meant in that system, Eastern philosophies, and discovered that one of the pressure points was linked to nausea, like on the face. So next time she came in, he said, look, this is a long shot, but you keep saying that every time you're near water, you feel really sick in your stomach. Hey, there's this pressure point. How about we just sort of tap on it and see what happens? And he actually said, I don't think anything will happen. (laughs) So they tap on this pressure point, not for very long actually in the session, and she just sort of said the feeling's gone away And he had a home office and had a pool in the front yard that she had to walk past every time she came into his office. And she ran out the door before he could stop her and started splashing water on her face from the pool out the front. And he was like, what's going on? Anyway, that's sort of where I guess the first uh, forerunner to what we have at the EFT now started. And it was called thought field therapy. So it still exists. Roger Callahan has students. He's now... um, passed on, but has students all around the world that do set types of pressure points for set problems. And that's what thought field therapy is. But he had a student called Gary Craig, who was actually a engineer from Stanford University uh, in the sort of 70s and 80s. And Gary said, oh, what if we just simplify it and use the same pressure points for every problem and not have sort of set algorithms? So if you had to tap on these points. And that, that was EFT. So EFT we call tapping because it's just about tapping acupressure points and it was probably in the decade that followed that that the research started. Uh, Gary Craig's still around, still does different variations, but he basically taught his technique to the world for free and gave the copyright of EFT uh, to the public domain so it was available for anyone to learn and self-apply and the rest is history. We've been doing the research ever since. So that's sort of where it comes from. Yeah, what a story. Yeah, big story. <laughs> Better <laughs> over decades, decades. Yeah. So just briefly, and we might circle back to this later on, what does a, a sort of a session involve from a, a broad perspective? Yeah, so if someone came in and they sometimes come because they want to do tapping, uh, it's something that's on their radar, someone's mentioned it, even general practitioners are mentioning it these days. They might come in after sort of initial standard process where you do maybe assessment or intake, find out what the problem is. You would teach the client what the tapping points are and you might just do that for something general like, you know, deep breathing, that type of thing. And then ultimately it depends on what they want to apply it to. So all of our research in the early days was around food cravings. So we would actually have whatever food that they wanted to lose the desire for in front of them. And then we would use the tapping process or technique on the different aspects of that food that they felt they couldn't resist. Uh, If you were working with someone with chronic pain, which we're running a trial at the moment, we're teaching them how to use the tapping process for the aspects of pain. Now, if a memory, for whatever reason, surfaces, and we can talk about how that and why that happens when you start tapping, you sometimes start to get these memories from your earlier life. There's different applications of tapping called the movie technique and things like that where you can actually process through your mind's eye a past memory but with the tapping technique. So we're basically probably, if someone's obviously using tapping a lot, tapping for about 45 minutes out of an hour session. Like that's not unusual to do that. Okay. And is the, is the patient 
client tapping themselves, correct? Yes. So it's self-applied and that really is quite self-empowering. So the practitioner therapist taps with them, but the client taps on themselves. They mirror, uh, mimic. And it might be that the therapist is leading because they're teaching them and saying, here's the word that he said to me. And then the echo is the client saying it back, that type of thing. Fascinating. Yeah, I'm really curious in the, the language, which we'll get to yeah. shortly. Uh, but first, let's dive into the, the research, which, as I said, there's volumes there, which is a real pleasant surprise. And I spent days down rabbit holes looking into <laughs> this. Um, so I want to first off start off with, I suppose, not the skeptic, but the, um, the, the real questions I had around about like sort of quote-unquote proving this. Uh, mm. I was really pleased to see they had these dismantling studies sort mm. of trying to see what this if there's a signal is it the acupuncture is it the talking is it the therapy sorry um so can you describe some of the quote-unquote dismantling studies they've done to try and either disprove or prove and and what was found there yeah absolutely so dismantling or those comparison studies are often done by people who aren't in the field necessarily as practitioners which is even better because it means that they are sitting outside the field and not necessarily have any allegiance to the technique. What happened with the several of the first studies that came up, and normally what happens in these techniques is they'll have the standard tapping practice for might be anxiety, test anxiety, and then they'll have a group that do uh, a substitute instead of the tapping. So they might say the words but just do deep breathing. And then a third group might tap on what we call sham points, so unknown acupuncture points on the body. So Harvard University's mapped the whole body according to you know fMRI to identify where they all are on the body. And they're not everywhere, although we have hundreds of them. So then you'll have this group that do what they call sham tapping. Uh, and then there might be a group that just say the words but don't do anything to see whether or not just the process of acknowledging what's happening for you. So often these studies have sort of three or four variations of that. Now what happened inadvertently with several of the early studies that were looking at things like test anxiety or worry or stress is they actually with the sham tapping condition used the fingers to tap because normally you're using two fingers. But what they didn't know, because they weren't um, obviously researchers in the EFT field, is that across the fingertips are all acupressure points. So by even tapping on an unknown acupressure point on the body, you actually activate the pressure points on your fingers. So funnily enough, those early studies actually showed that some of the sham conditions actually were getting similar outcomes to the true EFT recipe if you like but what happened was the papers were written after that sort of saying yeah but you've actually got all these acupressure points and that could explain that outcome now from those early studies there were researchers in the US who developed a really solid uh, dismantling study and it was done on teachers who had burnout so they looked at they used lots of standardized questionnaires were validated and in their sham condition they didn't use the fingertips they used like an open palm you know on the underside of your forearm where there's no pressure points on your palm Ah, yes and so that was probably the best dismantling study to date because I mean not only did it show that the sham condition just didn't get an outcome statistically compared to the true EFT one they actually had controlled for acupressure points elsewhere on the body which that's what you have to do but if you're an outsider wanting to just run a dismantling study and you don't have that level of knowledge about acupressure points it was an easy mistake to make 
So there's been a couple of others that have been done well uh, since then as well. Same kind of thing. The sham points just don't show any outcome whatsoever statistically compared to the true recipe. And we ended up doing a meta-analysis on all of the studies, including the ones that had used finger points, and ultimately showed in that paper that the effect size of doing the true recipe on the acupressure points with the statements actually had an effect size far beyond and showed that tapping on the pressure points is actually the active ingredient, not necessarily the words you say. So it does work if you just sit silently tuned into whatever the emotion is in your body. But ah, right. words. Yeah, so it is the tapping on the pressure points that's the active ingredient and you do actually need to hit the pressure point <laughs> for it to yeah, work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's sort of, yeah, useful to kind of know and, look, I'm sure other dismantling studies will get done as time goes by, but every one that we read that is actually carried out correctly shows that EFT is actually the one that gets the effect. Brilliant. Hmm. Now, um, before we dive into conditions, I've just sort of broken this down, the next step, They've done, whether as a standalone or part of like a looking, say, anxiety, depression or PTSD, they've looked at biomarkers as well. Mm. And it seems like there's a whole myriad of different changes that can occur from EFT, from blood flow to like neuroendocrine um, changes and even epigenetic changes. Mm. So can you give a bit of a a summary of some of the the physiology that has been uh, recorded from an EFT session? Yeah, the last couple of years we really have seen um, a colleague in the US, uh, Dr. Dawson Church, he has done a couple of different genetic um, sort of studies and, I mean, they're fascinating to look at, but also those physiological biomarkers, like you say. So everything from, and we've been doing them here as well, we test cortisol, we test blood pressure in our trials pre and post each session. So adding that addition really does show the body. It's not just I feel better after tapping, I feel a bit calmer. We actually are now showing these um, biomarkers that are shifting. So, I mean, you alluded to things like blood pressure and resting heart rate and things like that, but cortisol, the stress hormone, radically changes. And I'm sure we'll get into today talking about our our study that we did uh, just last year that showed after one hour of tapping a massive reduction in cortisol. So those kind of things, um, as well as obviously all our psychological benefits. But the gene studies, I think, are particularly important. The very first gene study that was done was only a pilot just to have a look at does anything happen because these experiments are expensive to run. So after one hour of tapping just for stress, the pilot participants showed 72 genes uh, changed in their expression. Now what we understand from you know, a chronic health point of view is it's more so the expression of a gene and the information that's telling that gene to express itself that gives someone the symptom, particularly in chronic illness. So if you have an ability to give your body a different sensation, it's ultimately affecting the information that's going to that cell to tell the gene whether to express itself or not. So that study was then kind of piggybacked, if you like, by Dawson Church, where they took a group of returned war veterans that all suffered post-traumatic stress disorder, did the gene study, so it's just um, blood testing, so did their blood testing before and after a 10-week EFT treatment program, which is much more standard for PTSD, and they had one hour a week of tapping, and they showed that by the end of it, six genes that are known genes responsible for the PTSD kind of diagnosis or symptoms that people get like hypervigilance and nightmares and all those kind of things those genes stopped expressing themselves which meant it also coincided or correlated with 
the, the war vets themselves saying, oh, I don't have those symptoms anymore. So once we can say this is what's happening at your body level, they also then were saying, yeah, well, I don't have nightmares anymore, I don't have hypervigilance or I actually don't have, you know, dreams anymore, nothing reminds me of those moments in the war because they'd done tapping on them. But the genes said the same thing. Now, six months later, that was still maintained. So once the body is in that state of calm or having processed something, it doesn't revert back, which is that's probably because most people go, well, does it last? How long does it have? Yeah. And yeah, we've done yeah. two-year follow-up studies here in Australia. So, yeah, so it's good to know that, you know, if you if you actually think that there's a family illness that gets passed down through families, often it's not at a DNA level, it's at an epigenetic level, which is the yeah. information around the, the DNA there. And tapping is one way that's emerging to actually change that information, which means you won't get the illness or you can change the illness, which I think that's is pretty prof- exciting. That's profound, yeah. Like So just to summarise, short cortisol is fascinating, but that's a, mm. that, you know, um, if you go out in a busy street or something, your cortisol is going to go up. But that's quite acute, but to see those long-term and permanent changes so it's like the, the methylation patterns on the dna mm. from these sessions that's yeah remarkable and mm. particularly for like profound chronic severe illness, illnesses like ptsd which we'll yeah. get to in a moment yeah so yeah let's um talk about some of the conditions i'll start with uh, i suppose the the obvious ones like the the, the um the neurological or sort of the psychiatric ones like anxiety and depression because obviously so common and mm. um but there's been a, a fair bit of research on both. So um, maybe just before we start, and I'd like to try and translate this into because there's the research and they talk a bit of things about like effect size. Um, can you maybe just frame up like what that means in terms of clinical, you know, differences and benefits? Because sometimes mm. you can see a st- statistic significance of, you know, the p-value, et cetera, but that doesn't always translate yeah. into a, a clinical benefit. So maybe just a bit of a, a preface about effect size and we'll have a look at anxiety. Yeah, for sure. So normally with effect, effect size statistically, we're trying to determine whether or not the outcome that we're seeing from any intervention is has any, um, I guess, uh, particular origin with chance. So we're trying to say, and p-values are around that as well, but we're trying to say, is the outcome we're seeing due to any element of chance or is it actually due to the intervention that's just happened? And that could be medication, that could be whatever. So we talk in terms of this effect size. Now, normally the effect size is measured on a number of zero to one and it's a decimal. So anything that's close to zero, like 0.2, is called a small effect size, which actually means, look, something is happening, but you probably can't notice it necessarily with the naked eye and there's a fair amount of chance that, chance could explain the outcome here but the closer you get to one so 0.8 0.9 we're talking about large effect sizes and ultimately what we're saying is the outcome that we're seeing so that could be people saying oh I don't have my anxiety or my stress anymore I don't meet criteria for PTSD or whatever it is they're saying the chance that it's due to the intervention that's been done is almost like 100%, but the element of chance is really, really low. So we're normally looking zero to one. So when you start having a look at um, like medication on average across most clinical trials has an effect size of about 0.5, 0.6, which is moderate. So the outcomes people get 
may be in part due to the medication but probably in part due to other things and placebo effect comes into play there as well as beliefs and expectations. Now when you have a look at there's been um, three or four or five I'm trying to count now Mm. meta-analysis done on EFT like say for anxiety and you have to have enough individual studies to analyze them all together that's what we're doing with the effect sizes so for anxiety there were 14 studies that were analyzed and the effect size of EFT working to reduce anxiety like not only statistically but at a clinical level meaning that patient says yeah, I don't have those feelings anymore, or they don't meet diagnosis. Like the effect size for anxiety was 1.23. So, I mean, with anything over the number one, we start to go, oh, okay, here, really hard to argue that there's any chance it's actually due to the intervention, which in this case is EFT. Depression, um, from memory, there was about 20 studies there. Um, effect size there roughly about you know 1.3 they looked at variations over time but they were all above one so again people not meeting diagnosis anymore for depression or their symptomology so that's that clinical kind of impact but PTSD is where it really stands out that they looked at um, and these again were outside researchers not in the EFT world the effect size for PTSD was 2.96 which when I present wow. with conferences, I make them all say it out loud. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, now remember what I said about zero to one and largest effect size. Like to have an effect size of 2.96 not only means statistically with all our numbers, these people, you know, don't don't have, you know, symptoms anymore, but the patients themselves will tell you the impact on their lives is profound. And we then go, yeah, we know because we're looking at that kind of statistic saying there is absolutely a hundred percent outcome here because of the tapping and they're saying to us i'm not having nightmares anymore i'm not i don't jump or have the startle reflex i'm back to my normal self those memories and you know events don't bother me anymore so they're telling us the the lived experience but we're seeing it in the numbers so to have effect sizes like that um is profound it's just amazing yeah absolutely and i feel surprised that like it's greater than depression, but PTSD to me is such a complex and um, and now thankfully they're identifying like a an organic. It's not just a you know in their mind or just a, a simple neuro uh, neurotransmitter imbalance. Like there's changes in um, brain structure, amygdala, and hippocampus, etc. Um, I'm just really surprised that you, you see even greater response to PTSD than say depression. Um, yeah, I don't know. What, this is a statement. I don't really have a question around it. Yeah, but, that's right. Um, well, I have a thought because um, we have run. <laughs> yeah, we'll share my thoughts. Yeah, we'll, thoughts. <laughs> we've run two depression trials here in Australia where, where they were diagnosed clinical depression. You know, DSM five sort of stuff. But I think the shift with our understanding of depression with the gut microbiome that is probably going to explain some of it in terms of the depression trials that have been done with EFT haven't targeted that. They've only targeted sort of the psychological symptoms, but our understanding of depression is shifting. And the reason I say that, I mean, we teach that now to our master's students in psychology as well, is you really do have to have the gut mark because what they're eating may actually be what it is that is presenting themselves as a symptom of depression, not not so much from a serotonin point of view, but from a food choice point of view. Because every food craving trial we've ever run where people tap on all the high calorie junk foods and lose the um, 
you know, desire for those, we always get them to fill out measures on anxiety, depression, somatization, and all their depression improves. So yeah, of course. I think the trials that have been done on EFT for depression to date just haven't done that angle because we sure. see that they actually all get, uh, they have improved depression symptoms uh, when they lose their desire for junk food, which is a byproduct they weren't expecting and they probably didn't even know what's there. So I just think trials in the future probably need to do both, whereas PTSD is a bit different. Yeah, good point. Um, so just, yeah, finally, with well, PTSD, like I just want to reiterate those profound um, results. So is any sort of broad statements like, um, and we'll maybe get to that with the language, like obviously people they have been traumatised and from the what I've seen in the research in the US, like, you know, war veterans and sexual abuse, et cetera, like this are are really serious um, drivers and mm. I don't know, just like any broad statements around like the use of EFT um, statements or um, cautions or what's the takeaway, I suppose, from the research and, and from yeah. a practical application? Yeah, particularly for things like PTSD, we now have published clinical guidelines of how to use EFT for PTSD and every major EFT body around the world, including us here in Australia, contributed to those guidelines. So, I mean, we always say because EFT is a complementary field where a lay person can come in and go through a certification program, become a practitioner and be under a body as a kind of therapist, if you like. But for things that are quite um, complex like PTSD or have a diagnostic label, we do sort of say you know, quite openly, don't go where you don't belong. So if you're not mm. a licensed mental health professional here in Australia that might be under APRA in America, you know, their bodies, then really even if you're an EFT practitioner, it may be that that is the type of condition or client that gets referred to someone who is. So at least at a minimum following the clinical guidelines because they are really practical and they're based on all the research as to, if what they score this on a certain measure, these are the steps you need to take with EFT. This is what you need to do in addition. This is the family sessions that need to be included. If they score this score, this is what you need to do. So if practitioners out there that are familiar with EFT have never read those guidelines, that would be my first recommendation. You absolutely have to read those. They've been published in an open access journal that is um, in America. So read those. But the other thing too is obviously... EFT can be applied to a wide range of areas, which makes it useful, but it doesn't mean someone's a specialist in all those areas. Like I'm, I'm obviously an expert and a clinical psych, but I would never use EFT for autism because it's not my area, even though, right. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah great advice. Long. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we'll put the links to those papers yeah. in the show notes. All right, well, let's move on to your area where you have been looking at the research um, for a fair while mm. is around food craving and, and weight management. And um, if, I, if I can just indulge in a bit of a monologue here, this is I find this really fascinating because um, obesity is such, in some ways, a really... Really, and, and cravings are a really complex area and there's a lot of um, strong advice and if you get on sort of social media, particularly around diets, all these diet wars and things. Um, but from my um, look at this and we've been looking at this for a while, I, 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 obesity largely comes down to, I believe, it, as boring as it is, the calories in, calories out. And mm. um, we tend to overeat um, food because of the food environment, the stresses and, um, yeah, like that, the palatability of food. So, any intervention that can 
um, naturally reduce your caloric intake, I think, and, and is sustainable, is a real winner despite all the sort of nuances of diet. And on top of that was is the concept that weight loss is um, hard enough as itself, but keeping weight off is the real challenge. And whatever diet people go on to, um, the data typically shows there's attrition, whether it's, you know, uh, sustaining the diet and they tend to put the weight back on. So anything that's sort of easier to do and keeps the weight off is a huge clinical win. And this is what really jumped out at me with the um, with your research. So um, that was just a bit of a, a, a preface to it. Um, so just, yeah, can you walk us through some of the, the landmarks and the research and what you've done, mm. yeah, particularly with your group with... Um, with uh, cravings and ultimately weight loss? Yeah, so we we chose this area. My clinical area had been eating disorders, you know, anorexia, bulimia. But because we, this was now 14, 15 years ago when we started, really that obesity kind of crisis here in Australia was starting to ramp up. And we thought, oh, and we were curious. We were, we had been EFT practitioners, but we hadn't really done research on this. So we were curious as to, I wonder if this will work. So it wasn't that we came in kind of going, well, let's prove this. So we picked sort of food cravings and thought, same kind of idea as you, that if people didn't have to use willpower anymore to resist a food who obviously the calories were impacting, meaning they were overweight or obese at that BMI level, then, you know, would that make it easier for them to obviously not only lose weight over time, but maybe then, you know, apply tapping to things like motivation for exercise and stuff like that along the way. So our first trial, we were like, oh, well, we'll just go on one of those current affair programs and say, we've got this free trial. If anyone wants to come along, you know, give us a call at the university or send us an email. And my boss at the time was a general practitioner and kind of went, yeah, this is a bit weird, but we, um, I don't think you'll get anyone for your trial. I'm like, oh, well. So I go on today, tonight, do this segment with this reporter about chocolate and I've got a chocolate muffin in the article and I just do this tapping I'm like we're offering this free trial if anyone wants to come along you know you've got to come for two hours a week for four weeks and we'll teach you how to tap on your cravings anyway four and a half thousand people were <laughs> my, my boss falls over and goes what are you doing I'm like I have no idea <laughs> so we didn't know we just thought look we know tapping works we've been using it privately with individual clients but let's see so that trial, we had six and 12-month follow-up because that's important, obviously, does it last. And lo and behold, after four weeks of tapping, they because they all bring their food into the group, like it's hysterical to be a fly on the wall because we have all this food sitting there and people are tapping on what it is that they love about the food because that's what they're trying to reduce. And, of course, you know, throwing the food out at the end, that kind of thing. And it's all high-calorie food. And so by the end of four weeks, they were like, yeah, no, I don't eat those foods anymore. And we're like, okay, well, that's great, but that could just be because we're nice people and therapeutic relationship, <laughs> you know, and soothing touch, that kind of thing. Mm. Well, six months later and 12 months later, we go back to, and we had 120 that had gone through that trial because we couldn't, we didn't have the funds for four and a half thousand. And lo and behold, not only psychologically we measured like anxiety depression somatically how they felt in their bodies and then we measured severity of food craving frequency of eating restraint ability willpower we measured all those things lo and behold all of those uh, psychological measures were still statistically significant at 12 months meaning none they didn't have an undoing effect none of it had undone from the end of the four-week program we're like oh wow this is interesting but then what they told us was that they couldn't remember the food that they'd done their tapping on. And when we reminded them and went, oh, well, it was, I don't know, Kit Kats or chocolate, you know, cake or chocolate's always the most popular thing or 
caffeine drinks or something like that, they they were kind of going, oh, oh, I haven't actually had that food for as long as I can remember. I literally don't even think about it. So we knew that neurologically something was shifting in that pathway that when they lost desire for the food, it literally kind of left them. There was no willpower involved and we thought, oh, I think we're onto a winner here. And we weren't suggesting that tapping was the only thing that would help because we certainly had people losing 30 kilos over that 12 months or 35 kilos, but mostly they were losing at least five kilograms over that 12 months by not doing anything else. So we kind of thought at least adding tapping to some sort of other weight management program would have to be essential, wouldn't it, moving forward? Because if you don't have to worry about using willpower or restraint, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be a benefit? So we ended up from that trial, because obviously it all worked, we published everything, the journals and academics start to go, oh, yeah, well, you know, we don't know how it works or why it works, but how does it stack up against a gold standard? So then we thought, okay, that's the next trial we have to run. So, again, still in person, people came to the university, but they either got randomly allocated to EFT tapping and it was an eight-week program this time around or cognitive behavioural therapy. Uh, we always have like a wait list and a community normal weight sample that's a comparison too. So they didn't get a choice because people started to, I guess, hear that this tapping thing might work. So they would want to come to the trial for that, but they actually got no choice. So we had half the group go through CBT for eight weeks, half the group go through EFT, two hours a week, 16 hours, looked at them a year later as well. What we found was um, at six months, both groups had some outcomes as far as or the EFT group, exactly the same outcomes. You know, food cravings went away, restraint went away, um, improved willpower, obviously improved psychological symptoms. The CBT group didn't have as many outcomes, but they certainly still had some. But when we looked at the data, the EFT group had achieved that in the eight-week program and just maintained it at six months and 12 months. But the CBT group took six months to get there. So the EFT group was obviously faster. And then what happened at 12 months was all the food cravings and the anxiety for the CBT group came back to the baseline level, but it didn't for the EFT group. So the CBT group kind of had an effect, took six months to get there, but then by 12 months had lost it and all their food cravings had come back. So again, we published all of that. And then what we did after that was when, okay, well, we seem to know what you have to tap on here for obviously getting food cravings under control. So we developed it all to be an online program and it was all uh, videos of me. I was in a support group for them live as well through their eight-week program and we delivered it worldwide online to see whether or not we'd get the same effects if they were self-pacing through that program but with me as support outside and we did two-year follow-up on that group. So we got exactly the same outcomes at 12 months and at two years they maintained them. So they didn't improve anymore from 12 months to two years, but they didn't need to because they'd actually got all their outcomes and we ended up comparing that data to the one the groups that had turned up in person years earlier and it was almost identical, uh, the same outcomes. So doing it in the online space, if you actually have quite a thorough program, works. So when people go, how long does it last? I go, well, we know it lasts two years. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's sort of what we've done. We've um, we've kind of done 14 years now, nearly 15 wow. in that food craving EFT space, and we've done literally every application and comparison you can think of. 
Amazing. So just to yeah, summarise the the restraint or the ability to avoid foods, the cravings are diminished or completely gone. Um, and also subsequently, I mean, there was a, a fair range, but there was a significant weight loss which has lasted, which uh, for me is the real standout. So the what's the sort of average weight loss and um, over this? So they, they lose the weight over the, the initial period and they hold it there. Is that correct? Yeah, weight was sort of the last thing to respond. So they didn't lose it in the eight weeks. They tended to lose it around that six month and then right. they slowly keep losing it or just maintain it. It just it didn't come back if we know traditional dieting results in weight regain. So we had, and funnily enough, we have to call them outliers, but we had heaps of people who actually ended up losing things like 30, 35 kilograms because they tapped on every food that they wanted to to get rid of that kind of willpower. But then we also taught them how to apply it to tapping to increase their motivation to exercise. Yeah. For those who really did a lot of that beyond the trial went on to lose those bigger amounts. On average, if they didn't do that, the average weight loss was about five kilograms, which may not have shifted their BMI, but what what it came down to was they came to the group to give up, say, chocolate, and yep. they did. And that yep. was the outcome they wanted. So they actually got what they wanted. And we asked, we asked every trial, so after the eight weeks, do you go on to keep tapping, like in your own time? And the answer for 90% of them is, no, I've never done it since. So then we also know it's the tapping in the group that they get in the eight weeks actually is what lasts over time because the majority of them do not tap ever again on anything. Okay. Which is that's, slack, but yeah, it's that, human behaviour. Yeah, 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 but it's still profound that that, but it's profound that it lasts, yeah. yeah. That's probably the most important part, that the tapping that you do do uh, is what counts. Yeah. Um, so you've done, what, 14 years now. Is there anything I mean, more to do? Um, <laughs> I mean, science always wants to do more research, but <laughs> is there anything next in this space? Oh, no, at the moment I've got to close the book on the food. I'm like, oh, we've demonstrated this so many times. <laughs> oh, look, we can compare to other approaches, but the gold standard is CBT and, and we have done that. No, replication is probably the most important thing now that other researchers elsewhere, which some have, if they replicate the area and the topic and get the same results, then it's not due to us as researchers or the therapists delivering the trial no we have actually turned our attention in the next two years to chronic pain so we are, we are now running eft for chronic pain trials that, that's a great segue because i was about to move on to um so that's yeah like cravings it's all to do with the mind the brain the depression the depression anxiety ptsd um and obviously it's emotional freedom technique but uh the, this this has been looked at other conditions like somatic conditions, which you don't necessarily link emotions to. So, I don't know, broadly, can you speak about um, other conditions that have been researched or what conditions practitioners treat that aren't, um, that are somatic in a sense, so pain, et cetera? Yeah, so anything at that kind of physical level, like pain, headaches, like phobias, have been looked at quite a bit in the research, um, basic sort of anxiety, stress, that kind of thing as well. But then some different things like claustrophobia has been looked at heaps. Test anxiety has been looked at a lot. There's a lot of papers published on test anxiety, performance anxiety, even dental anxiety. There's actually, I can't believe how many research trials have been run on like that dentist phobia, which is all an anxious feeling in the body, so some sort of fear. So a lot of areas have been looked at like that, as well as, I guess, um, variations of things like 
in the trauma space. So uh, childbirth trauma is actually a focus at the moment in the UK where women that through their childbirth process have had something go wrong, um, which you know, they then feel as perhaps pain later on. So there's some sort of interesting focus areas that are going on there. But, yeah, like every time we look and I get sent review papers uh, to review for journals of other people's trials and I've had one come through today and, and one a couple of weeks ago too that have both been done on menopause, so EFT for menopause symptoms. So it's interesting that different researchers around the world because they're growing in number in this space, are, are applying it to a range of different things that have physical symptoms attached to them to see whether or not they'll get sort of an outcome, as well as health conditions like cancer and and things like that. Heaps of areas. Wow. I'm looking forward to seeing that unfold. Yeah. All right. So I might just uh, finish the last part on like a, a, the practical um, and yeah, circle back to the what I'm intrigued on is the the language and um, again, I'm not an expert in psychology, but typically maybe it's more like sort of pop culture or um, more the esoteric stuff. It's all about like remain positive and don't have any negative thoughts. But what really jumps out at me mm. is you basically confront that that sort of traumatic, um, as you mentioned before, that you're playing back the movie technique or the memory and you're literally, as I understand, articulating it and almost diminishing it. Um, so is that correct? And mm. yeah. Does that, yeah. Is that sort of controversial in in on a psychology land? I think it's um, counterintuitive. Yeah. So what we're doing in tapping, which really, and I teach all the mainstream approaches at master's level. So I teach, you know, cognitive behavioural therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, you know, all that kind of thing, and positive psychology. And in those approaches of talk therapy, there's a lot of reframing that goes on and a lot of can we look at this differently and and if you change your thought about it, then it'll change your feeling, which does work for some people. Uh, but what happens in EFT is they don't do that at all. They actually get the client to say or acknowledge, that's the word that gets used a lot, exactly what's going on for them, which almost seems counterintuitive to sort of our positive psychology or affirmation kind of world, self-help world out there, which says, if you just think positively enough about something, then it'll shift, which might happen, but it takes a very long time mm. to change that brain pathway. So in tapping, it's quite new for a lot of patients and it actually results in a lot of them getting distressed quite quickly because they've almost been trying to hold at bay, yeah, like what you know, acknowledging that they have got this pain or this feeling or this thought or this memory. And we suddenly start to say to them, and the setup statement that gets used typically in tapping and it always starts like this is saying even though I have this and you say what it is even though I have this you know pain in my hip and it's been there for five years and I don't know what it's about I accept I have this and patients sort of look at you and go why am I saying the negative and it's like it's not the negative it's actually the truth it's what's going on and I think that's where people sort of go I mean I have two teenagers in my house that have had tapping their whole lives and sometimes my elders still goes why am I saying my problem? And I'm like, yeah, that's what's different about this. And if you were just to say your problem, not a lot changes. It just makes you aware. But the tapping on the acupressure points, the mechanism here of change appears to be, because we have done fMRI studies, I actually didn't mention that, and we're gearing up to do one for the chronic pain trial as well. So we put them inside the MRI machine and look what happens. So when you do the tapping, acknowledging the pain, the amygdala, that stress center, quietens down. So the tapping right. the acupressure point 
does have an impact on the stress centre in the brain, which is why people say, I feel karma or they start to yawn or they even start to go, oh, that problem doesn't seem so close to me anymore. It's almost like a kind of at a distance when I think about it now in my mind's eye, that type of thing. So the acknowledging in the present moment is very mindful, which is the crux of mindfulness, but it is actually coupled with this physical aspect of tapping on an acupuncture point, which is what seems to get the shift faster than just mindfulness or you know meditation that kind of thing and we've seen it in the brain so we've got EEG studies and fMRI studies of tapping where we see that the brain just doesn't light up anymore after a period of tapping on a particular issue when they go and think about it so we know that it matches what they're telling us kind of from a lived experience point of view so it is when someone was if if any of our listeners are to google tapping on youtube you'll find like five million videos because there's heaps out there But sometimes tapping along with one of those videos can be quite confronting because you're actually saying your problem and maybe for the first time. you just got to remember to keep tapping. So rather than just acknowledge it, you actually have to tap on the pressure points. So it is, it's it's almost counterintuitive to the rest of the positive self-help movement. Yeah. So is it very complementary to other therapies then or because it's such sort of almost counter, Mm. you have to really use it as a standalone? No, a lot of uh, professionals, obviously, who do use it may well be trained in lots of other things. And sometimes they might actually be using standard talk therapy for different aspects of a session just to get information or to help a client make a link. But the processing of something once they've become aware of it is where tapping really nicely comes into play. So if in the talking to a client just about their history or that you're making the links, often that awareness of where something comes from doesn't shift it. Like we, we, we laughingly say um, if knowledge changed behaviour, we wouldn't have an obese problem mm, or we wouldn't yeah. have a smoking problem because knowledge isn't enough. So when the client gets it, then you can offer, okay, well, now we need to, I say, process it. Uh, okay, there's a range of different things out there that you can use for this. Tapping's a pretty easy one. Let's give that a go. And often having that first experience and and having it work is what then makes people realise, oh, wow, that actually worked, Uh, more so than hearing it from their neighbour or watching a video. So, yeah, it's complementary to a lot of other things. It's just that it's a way of processing, you know, what's happened or what's in the body in that moment that's pretty quick. I, I actually, I'm really impatient. I openly say I'm so impatient. It's probably why I found tapping. I'm like, well, oh, this thing's really fast. Okay, that's good. I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I do a lot of um, meditation research and analysis for a colleague in the US. So we met, we analyze EEG scans and meditation's great and I love it, but it just takes too long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I'm a bit impatient for it. Yeah, too impatient. Um, so I think addictions is a good example and uh, hopefully I can frame this up in the right way. Um, so say with addiction, you come there and say it's cigarettes or food or whatever, I say cigarettes, and um, you've got that sort of behaviour that you try and change and you, you, you make a statement around that. But often, say, cigarettes and um, people, in a sense, self-medicate, for you know, with um, substances for a myriad of reasons. And do you ever uncover more you know deeper and traumatic things and so how do you negotiate sort of navigate through that or do you just stay at that sort of superficial level or, or do you have this sort of a, an onion layer approach to diving mm-hmm. into why they're, they're smoking or drinking or doing whatever um to, to help them currently 
Yeah, a great question. We do the onion approach. Sometimes the client knows, so they will know the underlying trauma and they come in knowing that and that's where they want to start. So that's much more middle of the onion stuff. Other people, particularly in our clinical trials, and we have run um, a smoking trial as well, where they don't know. So we don't necessarily direct them there in the beginning. We do the onion approach where we tap on the symptom to start with. And the symptom is this food I'm eating or this cigarette or, you know, even at a bigger level, you know, a more illicit drug or alcohol. We've done those kind of in our trials as well. So we tap on that in order to kind of lessen the you know, strength of that desire and that willpower thing. What happens, and I think we were starting to kind of allude to it earlier in our talk, when the amygdala quietens down, because it sits next door to the hippocampus, which is ultimately our memory structure in the brain, what happens through tapping naturally is as the amygdala gets quiet, even if all you're tapping on is your desire to eat this chocolate bar or, you know, smoke this cigarette, often what will happen is the amygdala then is sort of almost allowed or has the ability to start to trigger uh, a memory that might come up. Now, clients and people that are Googling tapping out there won't realise this, so they'll tap along with a video on YouTube, get a fleeting thought of something 15 years ago and ignore it because they won't realise what's happening there, whereas as therapists we look for it. So we don't suggest it, but we'll say, oh, so did something happen there? And they'll go, how did you know I thought of something? And it's in sometimes in their eye movements. And we'll say, oh, I just noticed you kind of took a big sigh or a breath when we tapped on that. And they said, yeah, actually, I just started to think about it. And I'm like, okay, well, here's what might be happening. And then what we do is turn our attention to the processing of that memory because it's almost like we have this inbuilt mechanism of the brain to actually tell you where it comes from. So we don't we teach them not to ignore that when they're uh and if they're tapping at home on their own and that happens and they don't want to do it themselves they just write it down and bring it back to the therapy session next time so it is an onion approach it's a very elegant approach and it can happen really fast which people don't realize if they give it a go on their own at home not knowing and they're like i'm gonna tap on my chocolate bar and then start crying and realize there's something deeper here now for some things like uh particularly food cravings or smoking or or whatever, sometimes it is only about the substance. And when you remove the desire, there is nothing else there. Like it was just a habit. But for others, there definitely are origins. There's a reason for um, that soothing behaviour and it does tend to sit more in that trauma kind of field. And to be honest, I can't predict I don't know when that will happen if if the client hasn't told me. I wouldn't even know. I just go with what presents itself. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I love how it explains the physiology. It's not just this vague sort of they're comfortable and they have these these things that pop into their head that the amygdala is calmed and the hippocampus is processing it. So, yeah, um, yeah, I'm thrilled that you've done all this uh, um, imaging studies. But also, yeah, more importantly, from a clinical perspective, the fact that they can work through these emotions and get to the, the root of whatever's um, troubling them is amazing. Um, so I suppose it leads on, me on to my last area of questioning about um training people being practitioners like again you could be you could maybe do this adjunct as i said for weight management or um stress or insomnia but yeah i'm also weary that it could really unpack a lot of things as well which may need a you know a more dedicated and experienced practitioner so what's the sort of levels of training um and how they sort of as you mentioned the guidelines 
draw the line between the more superficial versus referring on. Yeah. So there are sort of three main bodies worldwide, and we can give the links for people to go and explore, that offer training for lay people. So anyone that, you know, has had their own experience or just really wants to make this their life kind of journey and help others, they go through a certification training program that on average will take at least a couple of years. A lot of that includes mentoring and supervision that is ongoing in that process and they they literally can't call themselves a certified EFT practitioner until that process is completed which are really solid I sit on every single one of them they're either their board or their ethics board or their research board or whatever so they have that then there are additional trainings like here in Australia we run a training that's a skills-based training but only for licensed health professionals that already work with clients so if you already have the counselling client skills, you know how to do a therapy process, you can come and learn EFT as a skill. And really, it is only a stress reduction technique. It's not a therapy as such. You don't have to go and do a diploma in it or anything like that. So in Australia, we offer that where if someone wants to come along and it's in-person training, so it's not online. And again, there's mentoring processes. You have to provide video sessions to be kind of evaluated and things like that that make it a thorough process. And we offer ongoing uh, supervision and mentoring for the rest of their lives as well so there's a couple of different approaches one if you're a lay person there is a process and the three bodies worldwide would be the best to stick to they are the ones that ultimately when big bodies like medicare uh, approve eft for use and things like that it'll be you have to have done one of these trainings and then there's the other option that if you're already a licensed mental health professional and you want to come along and learn how to apply it as a skill within your therapy session, we have options here in Australia for that. Great. Uh, so, yeah, my last question is um, what's do you feel that EFT has got the recognition it deserves or would you like to see it more integrated into sort of conventional practice? I think we're getting there. Uh, the research, like you said, just having a bit of a search around has been gathering and gathering and building and now people, we thought we used to know every researcher in the world and now we don't <laughs> because they're popping up everywhere and at universities, which is fantastic. I think as a fourth wave and, you know, I'm sort of saying, look, I think the fourth wave coming through are somatic-based body approaches in the therapy space and EMDR uh, would be included in that group. I think the transition into that wave is still happening uh, in order to kind of get, you know, I guess recognition at that medical or, or government level still may take some time. What we have noticed in the last decade, uh, even locally, is the acceptance of it at medical levels is actually increasing. So the referrals that are coming through the Medicare system from GPs it's just been increasing exponentially. And what they're saying is, can you help this patient with that tapping thing? And I'm like, probably shouldn't write that on your referral, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what's happening are the clients, even in our clinical trials or wherever, have had an experience and they're going back to their doctor saying, oh, I don't have that problem anymore. And the doctor's like, how? And they're like, well, I did this thing. So our doctors are becoming a bit more open-minded, I guess. And we have, we have probably a lot of acceptance here in Australia compared to some of our colleagues overseas um, I couldn't explain why that is other than we just do research and publish it and let people know about it. And I think the more research, the better it'll be. But there is a translational gap with any new therapy and approach, and we're really only approaching the end of that 
kind of predicted time frame about now. So it'll be the next sort of five years. But look, I'm going to say, I'll go out on a limb and say, we think we'll be teaching this. It's actually been included now in a university in uh, France, in Paris. They actually include EFT as a therapy technique in their master's program for psychologists. So I'm like, that's the first one. It'll happen. It'll happen where they all learn it like they learn CBT. Yeah. Hope I'm still around (laughs) (laughs) when it happens. Um, That's really encouraging. You've done a mountain of work. I'm really appreciative of your time. Um, You've got a few resources, books. Have you got some online courses? What what have you got to offer? Yeah, Yeah, so we do. We offer a range of different things there for people. So my website, which is just peterstapleton.com, has a bunch of free resources. So if people are like, oh, I want to download we have the ultimate EFT tapping guide. That's free. They can go on. There's handouts and diagrams and things like that, you know, interviews, podcasts and things like that to listen to. Our training website, which has a lot of online programs, is evidencebasedeft.com. So we'll put all those links for you so you can explore anything there. And if you wanted to know more about uh, research, the my book that came out last year with Hay House is The Science Behind Tapping. So that's available in every format, every website, and really just summarises everything that's gone on to date, but in a really easy to understand kind of manner. And lots of client stories are included in that book. So I'm gearing up for the next book, but I won't give you a heads up on that yet. So okay. yeah, lots of stuff out there. Um, so just have a look at both my websites and absolutely get in touch. I'll answer any emails. Perfect. Peter, I really appreciate your time and your insights and I sort of wonder um, where you'd be if you didn't stumble across this. It's really consumed your life for the the past couple of decades. (laughs) Thanks so much, Nathan. It's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases keep up to date with key industry updates and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.